no, no plunder on TV will ever get a job again. <laughs> Hello, welcome back to the 40 Yard Switch. As always, Jasper Woodcock is my name, your host for this and every other episode. And for the third week running, we are joined by another special guest as Wilbur continues his uh, extravagant Asian expedition. Uh, he's currently in Japan now. He still was in Japan last, last episode, but he's still there having a whale of a time. Although I think he lost his phone, but we'll see how that. We'll see how. I'm sure. He, I'm sure he's doing fine. Uh, anyway, as I just mentioned, we have another guest uh, host, and this is a old friend of the show, returning for I think his third appearance on the podcast. Uh, Josh Ring, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back for number three, third time lucky. Hopefully, we nail it this time. <laughs> I wouldn't say we did poorly the first few times. But no, I smashed it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I did bad. <laughs> and I'm, actually, I'm pretty sure there, there, there were calls for. Um, uh, certain people, not me, obviously, but uh, 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 you know, being a little bit hot in their seat as uh, your performance was so well received. So we'll see. We'll see. Maybe you know, no one will be coming back after this episode. Stuck in Japan, who knows? It'll just be just be me and you. All right. So we've got a fair bit of uh, sort of movement from the traditional sort of formula that we do usually week to week. Uh, this week, we're going to, seeing as I've got Josh on uh, and we often have conversations about sort of, for lack of a better word, morality in football and... The bigger picture. The bigger picture, yes. It's not just about wins, losses and, uh, you know, sh- uh, week to week action. Uh, so we're going to talk about some of that week to week action for a few minutes at the start, but then we're going to talk about uh, a lot, lot more sort of overarching issue to do with football uh, for the remainder of the program. So let's get the uh, sort of formalities out of the way, if you will, by kicking off by talking about uh, the sort of headlines from the weekend's action. And there's only really two big games to and sort of headlines to come out of this weekend, and that was the two games that me and Rezik highlighted as being the biggest games of the week last week, uh, mm. last week's episode. So those were Chelsea versus Spurs and the Newcastle versus Arsenal game. And we'll kick things off with what I'm calling potentially an early game of the season candidate because it, it had pretty much everything. Yeah, I reckon it's funny because the two biggest kind of like happenings game of the seasons have both involved Spurs and another big team in the last few weeks and lots of red cards. So, yeah. Except they had it the other way this time. Yes, a reversal. (laughs) Yeah, no, big time, big reversal. So, yes, uh, Chelsea winning 4-1 in the end as Spurs go down to nine men. And it's very interesting to see sort of difference of philosophies of when down to men because obviously you've got Klopp's team who sort of locked in real hard at one all. Uh, and defended admirably uh, um, and almost held out for a one-all draw. And then it was an unlucky own goal in the 94th minute or whatever it was that saw them succumb to a defeat that was sort of overarched by uh, some very, very uh, bad VAR decisions. (laughs) But in this game, you saw something completely different. Uh, Ange Postacoglu has been vocal about his desire for his teams to be on the front and attacking and playing football in 
and like that's the only way his team's going to be playing while he's the manager. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw a very unusual nine nine men all on the halfway line. Uh, and I have to say, I mean, it, it didn't work because they, <laughs> they held out for a time and, and almost did score a few goals, but Chelsea did want, win 4-1. Uh, but and I'll get your take on what I'm about to say. I think for all the plaudits Ange is getting for how Spurs, you know, stay, stuck to their guns and you know almost created some chances to equalise in that game, I do think they still lost four-one to a very bad and unsure of themselves Chelsea team. And against a better, more clinical team, that scoreline would have been a lot more ugly, and they people wouldn't have been singing Spurs' praises as much. What do you reckon? I think that's fair. Um, I do think, though, that going down to uh, 55 minutes, you kind of have to throw in a bit of a Hail Mary. Like holding on for pretty well, because 55 minutes plus all that added time you're going to get, it's 40 plus minutes of holding on two men down. I think it's probably not a bad idea for them to try and still be aggressive and pinch goal, which they almost did. Um like it's it's going to be difficult for a team as well like Tottenham to shut up shop when they're not as defensively well drilled recently under the new manager. I, it's it's not their strength, and I do think they would have conceded a lot more to a better team. But I'm not sure that shutting the door and closing down is something they're necessarily very good at. So I don't know whether it would have worked either. I agree, but my counterpoint is I think you also have to sort of realize and know who you're up against yeah. and Chelsea was so unsure of themselves in that game offside multiple times seemingly not really like let's be honest that is possibly the sh- the worst performance <laughs> I was about to say <laughs> the worst performance I've seen from a team that scored four goals in a long time yeah uh, and I also think that yeah maybe they they're not as well drilled as defending you know um, nine behind the ball whatever it is but I also think they could have defended eight behind the ball and stuck Son or someone up front and still tried to hit on the counter and it could have been just as effective as, as, as against that Chelsea team because that Chelsea team, I would have, I have, we've seen them struggle to break down teams way worse than Tottenham this season. And I just think that they would have been... I think that Spurs, as, like, as good as they are on the ball, are still a very... Like, even though Ange doesn't play that style, are still a very good counter-attacking team and could have easily just lured Chelsea in and hit him on the break with mm. the same sort of... Because let's be honest, the, the chances they created were still win the ball in midfield and then mm. break. Like It wasn't like they built up through Chelsea. Well, they did have a couple of set pieces as well. But, exactly, set yeah. pieces. Um, in saying that, though, like I'm, I'm just thinking about it again. Losing um, Van de Ven as well from the hamstring... Like, you're down two centre-backs. And Emerson Royale playing at centre-back. Yeah. yeah, you've got, like, you, your team is not very well adept to deal with, like, the barrage of crosses into the box. Like, you've got a relatively short back line. Um, I don't think Ange would have done anything differently had he had two towering centre-backs on the bench. But um, maybe the situation is kind to him. Mm. Um, but, yes, who knows whether, given different circumstances, you know, same thing happens again. Will he do the same thing again next time? I think that'll be an interesting one. Yeah, I guess it's interesting because someone who's sort of maybe known a lot more about Ange's sort of play as a sort of avid A-League watcher back when he was um, mm. at Brisbane Raw and then much more of a Soccer Roos fan than I am. Yeah. Uh, is this unsurprising from Ange or is it even... Because like, I, I get initially going for it, but then the, like, towards the end it was becoming a little bit ridiculous. It was just like every two minutes Chelsea running in behind. Yeah. Uh, well, Ange's football philosophy has always been 
work on kind of your midfield and forward interchanges first and the rest will come later. But when he did manage the national team, he had to be a bit more pragmatic as all international managers are. Like you don't see these crazy high-pressure free-flowing international games. Yeah. Like they just don't really exist. So he does have that ability to to change to suit. Um but maybe he's just gone so far down. Like it's been so successful at Celtic. It almost seems like he's doubled and tripled down. I mean, like this is successful. This is the way it's going to work. So I'm, I'm not really surprised given that, you know, he's on a good thing and he's just continued. Um, and how, how many times in, in your life are you going to be down two men? for? Exactly. Days? This is true. And I think, yeah, like the overall take of it, I think there's a lot of room for hyperbole in an outcome of that result. And sort of the manner of it being like, you know, you can be like, oh, Spurs unraveled and the wheels fell off, which they did to a certain extent. Like, you can say, you know, it would have been completely different if Spurs had 11 on field the whole time, and it probably would have mm, been. Yeah. But the fact is, like, the 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 red cards were not like, you know, not, like especially in, like, the Liverpool game, people were arguing that, like, the, some of the red cards, like the first yellow or whatever, may not have been there for Yotta and, like, the yep. Curtis Jones red card, I, I, I thought it was a red, but like, I, I, people, other people were advocating that it wasn't. I'm pretty sure the two red cards that the Spurs players got, no one really had any problems no. with those. Those were pretty cut and dry. Yep. And I actually think for the first time in a big game all season, the VAR got pretty much every single decision right. Yeah, and I had that down in my, um, like, thoughts about the game. But one thing I wanted to ask you on that is your doggy's tackle that got VAR reviewed at the start of the game where he went in like two-footed straight studs at Raheem Sterling, but he kind of missed. So VAR reviewed it and basically that, you know, they said, well, he didn't get him, so yeah. play on. What are your thoughts on that? Because I am, I see those tackles and I think that like that, it's almost more dangerous to have a tackle like that that misses the player has to get out of the way than some of the other tackles that people have been complaining about. I agree, but I still don't think you can sense you can send someone off without contact or like that level of minimal contact. Yeah, it's the same reason why people were like calling for Kai Havertz's tackle to be sent. Like, like if he gets him with his first with his leading leg, yeah. yes, that's a red card. But he, but doesn't. he doesn't, and he clips mm. him with his training leg. It's a, it's never a red card. Yeah, the doggy one, yeah, optics wise, the, you can never fly at that. Like, like if he had a connected with Sterling, that's a red card even ten years ago. Yeah, but he doesn't. So, but but that's why you you yellow card him to be like. Don't, and you speak to him be like, you can't fly in like that. You're lucky to get away with this yellow card for, for that type yeah. of technique of tackle. Yeah, that, so that's I, where I stand on. Is it? Yeah, I, I guess that's a good point. Like, is it is it enough of a deterrence to stop people from doing those? Being like, hey, yellow card. If you would have got him, it would have been a red. Um, because that is that was the worst tackle I've seen all weekend. It was yeah. just lucky he missed. Because mm. yeah, he's definitely going to break someone's leg doing that if he if he like properly cleans him up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a fine line between like correcting the the movement or being like or sort of overzealous and trying to correct the movement and yeah. then someone breaking their leg. Yeah, but I think it's just about being tread at the moment. Yeah, but all it takes is sort of one tackle like that to break someone's leg for the line to be crossed. Yeah. So at the moment, it, it it's 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 very hard to say how they're dealing with it is the correct way, but. For the moment, I th- I'll say that it's it's going all right. Yep. I think we've had like no major contact injuries have been that serious so far this season. So yeah, <clears throat> fingers crossed. But yeah, yep. hopefully it stays. Um, the last thing I will say, and I've already touched on a little bit about how um, poor 
Chelsea was. I don't think this game by any means means like they're back or they're on the right track. There was so many things wrong with their performance, even after they, even when they were, you know, nine against nine men. Um, Sterling looked good. Palmer looked good. Reese James looked really good. Outside of that, everyone else did not cover themselves in glory. Nick Jackson, especially, it's possibly the possibly the worst I've seen a player look when scoring three goals <laughs> in a game. Uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, I think like. Like I've said about Chelsea all season, there's good signs there and they are outperforming every team they play in in expected goals every game. But there's still a lot of issues with their performances. Yeah, it Uh, did look like an uptick in the last few weeks um, and then, you know, lost to Brentford. And now this game, even though they won, people are looking like they're dropping off again. Yeah, I think it's it's just a very young and naive team at the Mm. moment. Like you've got a forward line. Sterling obviously experienced and looks good, but then even Palmer, like it looks good. He's 20 years old or 19. Nick Jackson, 22. Mudrick, 21 or 22. Uh, Noni Madweke, 21. Like, and the list goes on. Caicedo and Enzo, 22, 22. Like, uh, Connor Gallagher, 24. Like, it's it's, it's a very young team. Levi Colwill as well. Axel Dezassi. Even Reese James at captain is 25, 24. Like, he's, like the, all these players are very young and very raw. And yep. I think the team will get better because Poch is good with young players. But it's it's just going to take time. And, and I think it's hard because of the ex- expectations of Chelsea to be this like amazing powerhouse in English and European football. That's not them at the moment. They're in a big transitional phase. It, it takes more than a year. Uh, and they they probably won't finish top top four this season. I think they'll they'll push for top six, but even if they don't get it, it's like they they if there's there already is enough for me to believe they're heading in the right direction. But yeah, it's, it's it wasn't a good performance. Mm, but yeah. also by the same, sorry, go on, go on. I was just gonna say, and I think that about those young players, I'm, I'm, I might talk about that later with the direction of the Chelsea Football Club as well and what how they've ended up where they are now. Yeah, uh, and uh, and lastly, I, I say for Spurs. Moving forward for them, like obviously it's more chalk up, chalk up to this to just like a big, bit of an implosion on the day. It's not going to have lasting impact on the mentality of the team. But I am interested to see Spurs, as good as they've played, they've had a lot of things going their way so far this season. 100%. As a Liverpool fan, I'm sure you can attest to this. And even in the Arsenal game, you know, Declan Rice, a player that has historically never got injured, gets injured. And then Jorginho makes a mistake that you just you would see maybe once a season. Uh, and... Various other things. And like like every team, Arsenal had things going their way last season at, at, to start as well. But I am interested to see if Madison now misses time, Van de Ven misses time, and obviously Romero suspended for three games, how will Ange handle that? Because as good as they've been playing, a lot of it has been down to a couple of players. Yep. It'll be interesting. And that's see. lifted everyone else. But anyway, we'll see. <laughs> Moving on, we've got uh, Newcastle versus Arsenal. So this was... Let's be honest, not the best game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Arsenal only had one shot on target the entire game. I'm pretty sure Newcastle maybe had two or three, and the only real big chance they had was the goal that they scored, which everyone is obviously talking about. Uh, I'm, and so we'll get straight into the, the VAR stuff. Obviously, I'm biased, but I I don't have issue with... like I'll, I'll go through the three checks. I don't have issue with the, with, with the ball not being out, being the benefit of the doubt given. But my issue is... How do we not have technology at every stadium on the line? Like you see in the Bundesliga, they've got cameras in every corner flag. Yeah. And at certain stadiums, like Old Trafford, they've got cameras down the line, which which is how they adjudged Marcus Rashford's cross against Brighton to be like out. How does St. James Park not have that? Anyway, 
And the offside, again, how do we not have the camera angles to see that? But that that one was so marginal. I'm not going to be upset about that. But the foul. Yeah. <laughs> how anyone like Jamie Carragher, Gary Neville, and anyone else can argue that this wasn't just like the most blatant foul. And also, Gary Neville was very quick to say two seasons ago when Cedric pushed Son in the North London derby with like a slight nudge of the forearm. That's a blatant, that's a, that's a penalty, stupid decision from Cedric. Why has he done that? And I'm not going to go into how Gary Neville loves to punch down on Arsenal, but it just it, it baffles me that there's been so much discourse about how that how they don't, people don't think this was a foul because it's just by every letter of the law in the rule book, there's two hands, clear shove. He's pushing down while he's jumping up. Like anyway, it's the obvious one is just if that happened anywhere else in the field, would it be a foul? And the answer is. 100% yes. What is the what is he doing? Like that's a dumb challenge. You look at him you're like what are you doing? That's dumb. It's so obvious. But, you know, you can just do whatever you want in the box apparently and get away with it. Um it's it's ridiculous. Like not only was he pushing him in the back, he was pushing him in like the neck, head. So he's he's just completely stopping any chance from challenge of the ball. Yeah, and people are like, "Oh, Gabriel's like flopped." It's like, "No, why would he what like what?" <laughs> He's a centre back. He's going to try and head the ball. What do you mean? He's like people think he's like he's like jumped. I saw Gary Neville. Sorry, he like he was explaining it post game. He's like, oh, he's tried to go under to like flick the ball over. I'm like, what do you mean? If he's going to head the ball, he's going to try and head it back the way it came, not flick the ball over Joe Linton's head. And he should know that as, as someone who defended the back post for you know multiple years in the Premier League. It's baffling. But um, so yeah, that and the. So that with that like I get it's subjective, so it's not as it's not as bad as the Liverpool game, Liverpool Spurs game, because that was just cataclysmic human error. That was just a different thing, yeah, almost entirely. But it's still bad in the same way that it's like, again, it's human error, uh, not, not and VAR not being used to overturn a goal for an obvious foul. But the thing I will say is, which has been sort of the aftermath of this game, which has probably been more of a story than the actual game. Is just like Arteta giving the post-game interview where he, where he blows up a bit, and then the statement following. I think Arteta is well within his rights to blow up like that post-game. Like I'd be furious, and anyone in the same position would be furious as well. And also, it's better that he does that than like lambast his players for only getting one shot on target, or because they didn't play very well. And that's him protecting his team, and he said that as well. So I got no issue with that. In fact, I support it. I and then I get the. The, the the idea behind the statement the following day to potentially just stop him getting a fine for speaking out. Yeah. But I don't get it if it's like a proper sentiment as in like, we feel wronged here. Yeah. Because, and, and people have said this, and this was actually being said on a podcast I listened to. With these things, it, teams are only ever out for their own interests. Yes. If it didn't happen to them, they don't really care. As you saw when Arteta just sort of said mistakes happen after the Liverpool Spurs game and Klopp came out and said something. Yeah. And now Pochettino has said what he said uh, about how, you know, everyone wanted VAR and now it's a disgrace. So, yeah, I don't think the statement was in the best faith, but I don't have any issues with the post-game interview. Yeah, uh, I agree. Like, you're, that happens to you you'd be fuming and you'd be mad and it's like so much has gone wrong this season over the last few seasons like the whole point of the system is there to stop these things from happening and as a manager i would just be totally perplexed as to how i can see something like this happen and be like well i'm so glad we have var to fix this and it not to happen i would just be so utterly perplexed i just would not I, like it would boggle my brain and so that makes sense but i think your point about 
teams only ever speak up when it's against them. Um, that makes sense. But coming out in the opposite, so like, you know, kind of having a go at a manager for speaking out against the referees, like that's just so, so silly because three weeks later, it's going to be them. And it's just going to be like, oh, hey, you know, three weeks, three weeks ago when I said, oh, no, you need to protect the referees and now I'm yelling at the referees. Like you just look like an idiot yeah. as, a, as a coach if you do that. Yeah. I think people need to take a, a bigger picture and look at it as in they're like, we're not happy with the way this is happening for the entire league because too many mistakes are happening and now the mistakes happen to me rather than just I'm angry today. Mm. And I think, yeah, it comes... And I think the closest person to giving a sort of leveled response on this, but even then he sort of strayed on it a little bit last yesterday, was Ange Postacoglu. He said, you know, decisions are decisions, you just got to take them type of thing. Uh, and he... And he said, you know, I'm all for the betterment of, you know, refereeing with better coaching and stuff. And he said, you know, the, the respect that referees is getting is dwindling. He said, I used to be scared of referees, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. That's all good said in good faith. And I agree with that to a point. Uh, we need, like the referees need to be coached better in order uh, and supported more, but at the same time need to be held accountable because uh, like uh, they, they have such a big impact on a game. Yeah. But where he sort of missed the mark a little bit is where he sort of went, oh, I will never, you know, have a go, talk to the referee about the rules. It's like there's, I, I, I didn't need to go far for someone to dig up an example of when he had a go at a referee back when he was at Celtic about a handball not being given. Yeah, it's, happen, it's, it's happened to every single manager. Uh, and so I just think, no, like you said, no manager can, can be holier than thou. Because it's all happened, and like you said, when it happens, who knows? If, if if something like this egregiously happens to Spurs in a few weeks, we'll see Andrew's character then. Yeah, and I'm not sure he'll be as level-headed. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I I think that as long as more managers look at it from a a broader perspective rather than just a, I've been wronged today, but like this, these are the wrong things that have been happening. You know, no one's going to take them seriously until they stop looking at the last 90 minutes. Yeah, and I think this is a good segue into what we're going to talk about in a bit, but we're going to touch on the Liverpool game just briefly before we do that. But it's a good segue because I think the heightened emotion of all these outcomings is because of teams' selfish interests, but also there's a lot of money involved in everything that is fueling this anger and this... Absolutely. Uh, but we'll touch on that later. So firstly, uh, quickly about the Liverpool game, as you, as you are a Liverpool fan, we, we cannot continue without talking about the Liverpool game. Uh, I, I'm going to frame it as saying uh, a very valuable point for Luton. Yeah, good on Luton. Like they played well, uh, and I think the the commentators in the game actually mentioned it that the shape and the way they performed against Liverpool was night and day from their performance against Tottenham. It's like they went out. Tottenham was the the draft. They got absolutely rolled, and you know Tottenham was all over them. And then they said, all right, like how can we fix this? defending against teams that are going to play the same way. And they came out against Liverpool and they were way better. Yeah. So props to them. All of our good chances came for the first like 60 minutes came from outside the box. So they'd obviously done a really good job of defending, you know, their space. Um, and they should be like applauded for that. So they defended well. Yeah. I also think that like Luton like, and I think you can draw some similarities for how to adjust to Premier League life with how not to adjust to Premier League life between Luton and Vincent Company's Burnley. Burnley yeah. Rob Edwards has come in trying to play a certain way that Luton have played, which got them promotion. It's clearly not working because he doesn't have the players to, to manage that. And you, you just not afforded the same level of time and space in the Premier League. The speed of the game is the fastest of any league in the world. 
So then he's adju- uh, uh, gradually over the course of weeks, he's slowly adjusted his style of play to something that's more, f- it's, it's not necessarily like park the bus, but it's just more direct. Yeah. It's, it's, we're going to be more, a little bit more resolute in defense and we're, and we're going to be more direct when we get it. Like you see the goal, the set, the equalizer they scored against Nottingham Forest. It's long ball to uh, the striker who just, and then just leave him to his own devices. Beautiful chest down finish. Yep. Then you see the Liverpool game. It's defense daily. When you get a chance to counter, counter fast and be clinical. Yep. And that is essentially how, how you're going to win or get results uh, at home against big teams and away from home against teams you should be beating. Absolutely. Whereas Vincent Company still is insisting his team plays the way they played when they're in the championship and his players are still making naive mistakes, coughing up the ball. It happened twice in, for both goals against Bournemouth last week. Mistakes, coughing up the ball in midfield and better teams than there are in the championship spring on those score and you're left with eight losses in the first 10 games yeah company's definitely managing like he was last year and you know he's still a fairly new manager whether he's going to adapt or maybe whether he sees this as a longer term project um whether he's afforded the time for that you know maybe it's a three-year plan he's like we're just going to stick to our guns if we drop back down we drop back down then we'll come back up again i don't know but uh yeah, it definitely does seem like is slower paced at changing his mm. style. Uh, with regards to Liverpool, there just probably two talking points offensively. One was sort of Darwin Nunes, the good and the bad of Darwin Nunes, uh, and then the other was obviously uh, the welcome returns to the pitch and and welcomed with a goal of Luis Diaz. Mm. Uh, as a Liverpool fan, I'm sure you've probably seen a lot more coverage of what's been going on with him. Uh, how have you sort of? seen all of that um, play. obviously a horrible situation but yeah I guess with, with Diaz it's the it, it was very like nipped in the bud early on from the club it was like this is happening it's ongoing we're not going to talk about it like no one's going to talk about it and that's I, I like the way clubs do that with this information they don't let the media get all like um, you know wandering in their brains thinking about what might happen they just got on the front foot and said you know he's going to need time He's obviously got a serious issue going in his life, so it was really good to see him. and And they they also said like you know he he'll play when he says he's ready to play. Like we're not going to ask him to front up until he says he wants to. Um, and you know he he had his head in 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 the game. He got the goal. Um, and I'm really glad the FA didn't find him for you know revealing his shirt um, with his message of solidarity for his parents. For once, they make a good decision. Yeah, I know. Um, and with Nunes as well, uh, like he had nine shots in the game. He hit the bar, you know, he tested the keeper a lot. Um, he blasted one over from like two meters out. Um, I think the big thing with him is that he's really entertaining and he's really enjoyable, but he's still so raw and unrefined. Um, Daniel Sturridge put out a good segment on his issue being that he hasn't got multiple methods of finishing at the moment. Every time he gets there, he just hits he's it. He's just on instinct. He just hits it. He, and that like it's worked for him. He's fast, he's strong, and he hits the ball hard. And it's been successful for him, but as he ages, he needs to adapt and find, you know, the, the dink finishes, the chips, the finesses. Like he needs to to think more rather than let instinct take over. And that's a lot of why he's he's missing shots he's missing, but also scoring worldies because he's just running on pure instinct. Yeah, like that volley at the back post that he missed that everyone was talking about. If he, there's lots of players who in that situation would just realize you just have to control it into the net pretty much. Like yeah. you hit it down, but he's just tried to put his foot through it and blast into the roof of the net and it's gone way over. Yeah. And like he has tried to side foot it, but it looked like so unnatural to him 
um, that I just, yeah, I think he's just still working through that. Mm. But he's got the highest combined um, expected goals and assists per 90 in the league. Yeah. And it's just like he produces these things that no one else can. And a lot of people are making fun of him for not finishing, but he is creating and he is making stuff happen. Which is yeah, great. I'm not sure what the stat is now, but leading into this game, I think he was averaging a goal or an assist every 56 minutes in the Premier League. Yeah, so it's something you've seen. Crazy. But yeah, I think for just lastly on Liverpool, I think yeah, they'll be fine. Uh, like not the best result, but I still think they'll be in the top three and, mm. and waiting on any potential slip up from Man City, but who knows if that'll come. Yeah, and interestingly enough, Villa had the chance to go third with a win and lost to Nottingham Forest. Yeah. So. Just after I wrote something about how they're turning into a force to be reckoned with, they go and uh, do that. And even luckily, I did mention their away form had been a little mm. bit iffy, and it continues to be. All right, so now we are moving into a segment I have called the Sanctity of the Game. Uh it's a title with a heading like that for a reason. So basically me and Josh off air plenty of times have sort of had various discussions about where the modern game or the modern men's game, I should specify, is heading because with all, due to a lot of factors, it's sort of left Josh slightly more than me, but me more increasingly uh, recently, uh, a little bit jaded with sort of the current state of things. So... I don't really know how to start, but I'm just going to say a lead off with something and then I'll let sort of Josh rip. I'm just going to, what I've written is modern football is becoming further and further detached from the common fan, essentially just due to money, but money coming from the wrong sources. Would you say that's? I think that's true to the most extent, um, but I don't think that's only, I do think the amount of money involved in general is probably the big issue, but it's being exacerbated by where that's coming from and the scale. Because if you have a slow increase over time, you are able to adapt and change and alter over time. But when things happen very rapidly, then you know we don't have time to change and adapt and certain you know people, fans, um, structures are unable to really move with what the modern game's doing. And a great example of that is the Saudi League in the off-season where all the players are going to the Saudi League and no one really knew what to do about it because um, it was quite... It was unexpected. It wasn't like building over time. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. I think the Premier League is like the, the greatest example of it. But I think it, I, I think we should start with the, the World Cups and FIFA because this... It all boils uh, down from there, essentially. Yeah, at the root of it all, down, sorry, yeah. it's like the head governing body is willing to engage in it. So therefore everyone underneath is going to engage with it too. Yeah. And for lack of a, actually, no, I'm not going to dance around it. It's all, it's most likely that it, that it is, than it isn't corruption at the top, which with regards to awarding world cups, hosting to countries that probably don't deserve it over other countries due to money lining pockets, probably. Absolutely. Like, uh, no one's going to sue me for libel. I'm not a big enough podcast. <laughs> so that's essentially where it starts. Uh, and it started with... It started so it started with uh, Qatari ownership in uh, PSG and uh, United Arab Emirates ownership of Man City. But then that leads to a Qatar bid for a World Cup, which beats out Australia yep. 12 years ago, I think, or 
2013. I think it was in 2010, I'm pretty sure. If maybe 2012. But anyway, then that was where you first sort of really went like, something's not right about this. Yeah. Because it, it like there were so many things that changed to make that happen. Like playing in the off season, in the, in the summer, you know, air conditioned stadiums, um, all of the infrastructure needing to be built. There was a really obvious, like anyone could look in and say, hang on a minute. If we actually look at these bids and compare them, this Qatari bid is way below, not only Australia's, but I can't remember. There was another bid that was much more advanced in terms of less needed to be built, less needed to change. It just fit. It was a better fit. And so it's really obvious when, you know, you're bending over backwards to fit something into your agenda like they did with Qatar. Yeah. I agree. And it was, and obviously everyone knows about the near, near 10,000 uh, migrant workers that died uh, and all of that. But, uh, but like, that's not, like, that's obviously horrible, but I think that sh- people should have known that that was going to happen with sort of what is known about Qatar as a country with regards to human rights in the first place. Yeah. So it's like it, it it makes you question now with Australia potentially pulling out as they probably realised they weren't going to be winning against a Saudi Arabia bid for a World Cup. Yeah. That it's just another case of more of the same. And Saudi Arabia, to my untrained uh, you know research skills in mind, has got arguably more of a stain on its yeah case than worse Qatar does. Human rights. And record. you know a little bit more about this than I do. But. Yeah, and like uh, most notably to the general public in the last few years, there was Jamal Khashoggi, the um, journalist who was lured back into the embassy and brutally murdered. Chopped up into pieces is essentially what Josh won't say, but I'll say it. Um, And no one did anything about it because there's so much power with that country in terms of money, oil, weapons, um, that if no one's going to do anything about that, you know, what are we going to do about a World Cup? And Australia does have to pull out not only because... Like you said, they're probably going to lose, but we are in the AFC as well. So same confederation. The AFC confederation will all want to vote as a block and they're not going to back us. They're going to back Saudi Arabia. So if Saudi Arabia wasn't involved, then we'd probably have a better chance just because of who the competition is. Um, But like, what's the point in us keep coming back and bidding again? And I think a lot of countries are recognizing this. And FIFA even recently with this bidding process, they announced it very rapidly that, you know, oh, bids are coming in and you've got two weeks until the bidding closes. Like out of the blue, they basically just told people that you've got two weeks, lodge it in. Um, it almost makes me feel like they already knew of a Saudi Arabian bid. And oh, they they wanted did. to do that and they were like, okay, we have to look like we're going to offering it to other people, but really. Yeah, it's like they put it out to tender, but realistically, as soon as they announced it, Saudi Arabia was like, wow, here's our completely ready bid package for the World Cup. And it's it's like, why, why are you even bothering pretending that you're not gifting it to whoever you want to in the first place? Yeah. And it's, 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 it's kind of... It's kind of it puts people in a bit of a tricky situation because the way that FIFA and, you know, on social media advocates of Qatar or the Middle East frame it is is people that don't want... Uh, sorry. People that don't want a World Cup in Qatar or Saudi Arabia are being marked as, you know, racist because, you know, football's for everyone. Yeah. And, you know, the Middle East is there this opportunity. It's like... 
it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a bit of a small-minded take, but it also doesn't take into account, like we said, human right, the human rights stuff that goes on in all those countries. It also doesn't take into account how, you know, much of, like how short a period football has been a part of those parts of the world. Mm. Other places have been building a footballing culture for years. Australia, yep. not as much as other parts of the world, but, but still Australia a lot longer than Qatar and Saudi Arabia and other countries in that sort of area. So I think it's not, you know... Uh, discriminatory to say that Australia or an, another, you know, potentially Anglo or European or mm. country should host. It's just about, and this is where I think the sort of sanctity of the game is getting a little bit, you know, taken for granted is because it's it's about footballing culture and footballing heritage and yeah. and like the heritage that certain countries have of building that culture in their country. Like Australia has only been building footballing culture since really the fifties when all the markets came mm. over from Europe. But and then there was a little bit of a lull in the sort of late nineties two thousands when between the um, I forget what the, what the NSL the NSL and the A League, but that culture has still been there. Whether no, yep. it's not, not it's been at the forefront of media, it's still been there at like local grassroots level. Whereas I, like outside of like the, the, I'm sure there are probably you know leagues that aren't the Qatari league or the Saudi Pro League in those countries, but like there was nowhere near the grassroots like infrastructure and culture of football mm. there well and there's like less than a thousand fans at some of the biggest games being held in the saudi pro league with all these superstars it's like the support's obviously not there and like you said like if they want to grow the game to places that it's not been and really spread the game then why did africa only ever have its first world cup in south africa that was labeled as africa's world cup so it's like oh here africa you're getting your world cup it's going to South Africa and like, oh, well, we've ticked the box now. Yeah, East Asia is the, uh, yep. the whitest and most developed African country as well. And East Asia's only ever had one World Cup as well. And that was combined, you know, uh, Korea, Japan, Japan yeah. South Korea World Cup. So it's like, if, if we're spreading the game, then why is the Middle East going to have two in 12 years? Like, it's, it's just obvious that like any point that you can, you can put out is easily refutable. And there are also like some Middle Eastern teams that have, like, the, like honestly... Are better than uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, uh, like Iraq and Iran have performed better in World Cups mm. than uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia. It's like, but these countries won't get it. I mean, I understand other reasons about that, you know, war torn and don't have the infrastructure. But it's like just, you just you, like there's just there's so many rebuttals you can have for footballing mm. reasons. Iran is probably a better place to host than either Qatar or Saudi Arabia yeah. for a multitude of reasons. Um, but you know political reasons it won't go to iran but it'll still go to saudi arabia exactly so yeah i think so circling back from the world cup i think back to where we all started and it's like or arab oil states owning teams so it started with man city and then it was uh so that was the sheikh mansoor from the united arab emirates yep and then it was uh for the life of me can't remember his name but the guy who owns the uh from qatar the qatari Qatari prince that owns psg Mm mm-hmm then it was was it someone else before Newcastle, but well, you've also got like all of the city group spread yeah. around the world. So, so you got Melbourne City, New York City, and they've also got one in India now. I don't know if ah, you, yeah, I don't know that. But then, yeah, most recently it was Newcastle, and a lot of like the vast majority of people sort of it was spoken about briefly and then sort of brushed aside because Newcastle fans were like, "Why, hey man, we're back in the good times and all that." But me and you, I remember having a very lengthy discussion over over messenger about this when we have about sort of what how would we 
feel if our teams mm. were bought out by an oil state like Saudi Arabia yep. or by Saudi Arabia because they have Saudi Arabia the Saudi Arabian the fund or whatever it is PIF or whatever it's called yep. um, have that much more money than every other Qatari investor you know, United Arab Emirates investor so they have the ability to buy multiple teams yeah and at the time you said that you would probably seriously reconsider supporting Liverpool if that happened. Yep. And I said I wasn't sure just because of like the history of me supporting Arsenal for as long as I know, and my attachment to that part of the world. Like I feel North London is sort of like a second home to me. Yep. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I, I'm still not ready to say I would fully stop supporting Arsenal. But I, I, the more I thought about it, uh, the more I have sort of been like, I'm not, it would seriously make me question things. Mm. I think I, I think I've doubled down since we had that conversation. I definitely would. I'd probably leave high-level professional football for good if that was the case. Um, and part of the reason is, you know, football compared to a lot of other sports in particular, you know, these clubs and these teams they are so entwined in their cities. Like they are born and bred from their location. That's what makes their teams. And England, the government had a chance to shut this down and say, hey, no, we don't actually want any foreign investment or foreign for foreign ownership of our clubs because in a sense, British football clubs are cultural artifacts of England. Like if you think about England, a lot of people will say, you know, like, oh, Manchester United, that's like one of the first things that comes to mind. You know, football's coming home. Like football and the footballing clubs are permanently related to English culture and you don't, want that to be in the hands of someone other than yourselves and for a club like Liverpool whose history has been a very much a working class us against them you know the Merseyside derby being the friendly derby like there's so much about that club that is like inexplicably intertwined with the city and having foreign ownership from the Middle East just kind of ruins the whole point of the club in the first place and it stops being the Liverpool Football Club it just starts becoming the red English football club with lots of money like it loses its history by doing that so you know these I'm I'm not even sure that complete foreign ownership should exist for any team anywhere um, due to that reason of like you know it's it's a local club it should belong to that city yeah and and I remember having a sort of discussion I think it was when Max Rezik was on the podcast some a number of months ago now and he said a point that initially I sort of agree with but I've since changed my tune on it was like like Saudi ownership is bad but then you know billionaires of any sort have done something bad to get to where they are like Arsenal are owned by American billionaires Manchester United owned by American billionaires yada 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 and I'm like Yes, but there's a very different thing between like kind of, you know, exploiting your workforce to like live in sort of work in bad conditions or to like sort of get a leg up, like, you know, like an owner of a a massive corporation than there is to just like blatantly violating human rights for tens of thousands of people, if not millions. So that's a, a whole other subject for a whole another day. But I also think, so you can't really compare them, but then the reason... But, that, but American foreign owners are still an issue. But the issue, they are an issue that is a, that has been brought in by clubs to counteract what was initially started by Manchester City. Well, I would say it even goes back 
before Manchester City to Roman Abramovich. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I yeah, reckon yeah. Abramovich is yeah. probably actually... Like, Blackburn kind of did it, but Abramovich was the first to do it and do it successfully of, you know, mass international foreign ownership. And that and that mass changed, injection of money. Yeah, and that's a mass injection of money from foreign sources. And that changed the makeup of world football forever. Um, Chelsea fans love him because he was passionate about the club, but other people saw that as a way to get in and ha- run a business. And like they didn't, ha- they don't have to be Abramovich and care about Chelsea. They can just buy a club. Yeah, you just like you just tell me who, and I'll sign the check type of thing. Exactly. Uh, and so I think that there was that's when the first ship sailed, and there there was a chance to kind of turn that around and say, hey, are we okay with this? Do we want more of this? And the answer was yes. And then, like you said, um, oil money's come in and then not even yet to counteract that, but also just people are saying, oh, hey, like I can just buy big football clubs now. And, yeah, so and then Americans started to come. Americans come in. Um, and like we mentioned earlier, Chelsea, Todd Bowley, um, his philosophy at the moment with the club is signing these very young players on very long contracts with the idea of being... These guys are going to, like some of them are obviously going to turn into superstars. You know, we can make a lot of money on it, but it's it's extremely risky investing. And it's the time for stuff that we hope financial fair play rules were there to stop. Because if all of these Chelsea young players that they've signed forever flop, without more injections of cash, like Chelsea could fall apart Yeah, in a worst case scenario. And people are saying like a lot, Some you see sort of people online, I think it was Simon Jordan, uh, who's a host on TalkSport back in England saying that like oh it's quite smart what they've done because they you know it's 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 a it's an 115 million transfer fee for Caicedo but it's done in it, the reason it's an 8 year contract is because the transfer fee is paid in, in in 6 years of installments and it's like that's so it's like oh you know this transfer window only 25 million of Caicedo's fees is, is knocked against them and it's like that's all very well and good but if you keep signing players, yeah, and these and some and and you don't resell like they well, they got lucky they, this season because they sold Mountain Habits for a combined one hundred and twenty five million. Yeah, you will not get that return on your players year after year after year. I'm trying to think about who they can sell next off season that isn't at a loss. Yeah, like who is going to like Thiago Silva is going to retire. Yeah, like they can't sell him, and apart from that, the only other like. They could maybe sell Kukurea, but that'll be at a loss because they signed it for sixty million. Everyone else is new to the club, or is and is young, and but you either won't want to sell them, or Chelsea haven't performed well enough for you to sell them on for a profit, except for maybe Sterling. But even then, they signed him for again sixty million. Only only player they could sell for a profit right now would probably be Reece James, but he's the captain; he's not going mm. anywhere. So. And this is the type of risky investment that has been. Uh, kind of made necessary by clubs who are wanting to compete, especially in the lower divisions trying to get into the Premier League. Clubs are really going boom bust, doing things like this to try and compete with these mass, you know, mass cash injections into the league. And we don't want to see, I'm speaking for most football fans, we don't want to see clubs come up for two years and then fall apart and end up in the fifth division, you know, like Portsmouth. We don't want to see things like that. We want a bit of consistency, we want a bit of history. Like, you know, if it's your team, of course, you want to always do well, but it's not good for the league if you're constantly cycling through blowing up teams. Yeah. Um, it's not, yeah, it's it's not what you want. And yeah, it, it started it started a trend as well of, so Chelsea started it and, but I, did, I think it was sort of kicked into another gear 
when Manchester City started not only signing a bunch of players to the same level that Chelsea did, but also then having... And it's not just a Manchester City thing. Like Lots, lots of teams started to do it, but just the, the, the more and more and more exorbitant contracts that these yes. players are on. And yes. like Chelsea, we link at Chelsea, obviously they're on eight-year contracts, but then you've got teams like... All the big six... The reason they're called the big six is because they can offer their players and it's not all in the big six Spurs and Liverpool uh, and Arsenal comparatively aren't as much but United City and Chelsea have their players on ridiculous wages yeah. and like 200k a week for players who are role players on other teams yeah. you know, Mason Mount's on 250k a week uh, Harry Maguire's on upwards of 200k a week like and he's you know a fifth choice or fourth choice centre back option so then it, I, and then it, but then what it does is it basically just means that like no in order for any team to break that mold you might get teams like brighton break through and have a period of success against a team but mm. in order for any team to stay competitive they need to get more foreign investment yep. to splash the cash and you've seen like newcastle do it aston villa are starting to do it and it it just becomes more and more what's the word i'm looking for here i think it you become more and more sort of I guess detached from yeah like it's, it's not the word I'm looking for but like yeah like, uh, fans are just more and more sort of at odds with what's going on they don't feel connected to it exactly because it's so you know foreign like they're just like I don't I don't connect to these players who are on these wages that like this, there's all this money like like you said the working class level of these teams it just sort of goes it disappears everyone's a you know multi-millionaire now yeah like let, let's say the like the median wage in the uk i'm not sure what it is but let's just say it's something like forty thousand pounds a year for an average wage it might be lower than that who knows but then you've got guys that we talk about on 400 plus thousand pounds a week like how are you and that person meant to have any sense of thing in common like you're living in a totally different planet to these people so how are you as a football fan meant to find that connection like we're talking about and hometowns like that that brings in that connection like i live there you know like you said you you're connected to north london it's a part of you You used to walk down the street to the stadium it's like that is your connection to it but the more and more the, the game has expanded the more money that's come in the more global it's got as well like we're sitting here halfway across the world talking about a different league and investors from a different league like what is my connection to that club my connection to I, I care about them but i don't have the same connection as someone who's born there from the city and i want those people to still feel like they the club is part of them mm. i don't want them to lose that important thing to them through this foreign investment and that, that's kind of what's happening like they're becoming more and more detached and they, and they should be because if you're a newcastle fan and you care about what's going on in the world and you look inside and you, you say, well, I don't really want to support someone that has terrible human rights records. Like you, you don't want that, but you also want to support your team. So I want them to be able to not have to make the choice between giving up something that's so meaningful to them and making the morally correct decision. Mm. And we are sort of talking at length about sort of everything in quite a negative aspect and how the game's sort of going down a path we don't like, but and you could also, but then those listening could argue, well, you know, what's the alternative? That's just the way it's going. But that's the thing. There are alternatives out there. Yeah. And there are other leagues and other teams that do it differently and do it successfully. And, and as someone who is 
a Bundesliga fan a lot more now because you, uh, you've recently had a team promoted to the league. It's from yes. your hometown, finally a team that you have personal connections Actually, to. Actually, yes. <laughs> uh, the Bundesliga, firstly, is a good model for how that can be done. Mm. Uh, and secondly, your team is an example. Uh, can you see examples of it? Like, for example, Luton Town. Luton Town, perfect example. But yep. I guess from your, you have a lot more personal connection to the story of, of yep. your side. And so I guess... Do you see the Bundesliga? Okay, it probably won't ever be something that the Premier League adopts that format, but like, just what does the Bundesliga do mm. that can be copied? Yeah, and I think uh, part of the issue is that the rules were made a long time ago and they're not going to change. But in the Bundesliga, they have what's known as the 50 plus one rule. It's not actually what it's called, but it's what it's known as. And it basically means that the fans must own at least half of the club. So... The club can never be predominantly owned by anyone other than the fans. And that, 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 that means that even it doesn't have to be foreign. Like a German company can't own enough rights in the club to make all the decisions. So at the end of the day, the fans are the ones that get to make the decisions. They get to have the ownership of their club. They get to vote um, at the end of every season. Um, you know, it is a lot more work. But it also means you you do have control. It's like a it's like and connection. Yeah, connection. It's like voting. It's like you you know you go to your local council and you vote who you want in charge. It's the same thing for your soccer club. And that rule has like German football has still succeeded. It's still one of the top leagues in the world, even though that this is the case. And you could argue that it might be a bit top heavy in the sense that you know like your Munich is the only team that can really compete at the top of like the Champions League with Dortmund being a close second. Um, RB Leipzig is someone who's come in and tried to subvert that with the way they've operated because they're very obviously Red Bull and they're not, uh, but like they have subverted it to a sense. Um, but the rest of the league still operates in the same way. But that's the thing, like everyone has a go at the the, the Bundesliga for being somewhat of a, a one-team league because like, Bayern have won it nine times or whatever. And, uh, but... When three or four years removed from that being exactly the same case in the Premier League. Absolutely. And in the Bundesliga, what makes it a really enjoyable league to watch for me is below the top of the table, it is actually quite interesting and quite quite close. Whereas, you know, Bayern will often annihilate some teams. But apart from that, there is still good contests all the way down. And so you can watch a mid-table game and you can get an enjoyable like 3-2 result. Um, where yeah, like you said, in the Premier League, you, you're starting to see that. Like, how many, how many of the last ten years of City won? You know, yeah, they're just and also care. Bayern may win every year, but some years, last year especially, it comes down to the final day, a couple kicks in a Dortmund game, yeah, and a Bayern game, and that's exciting. Whereas, and and to be fair, City has had their own share of you know, I think final day two seasons ago, uh, coming back against Aston Villa to win three two and winning the league, but. I think three of their five wins over the last six years that they've had have been, they were far and gone by three games to go. Yeah. And like the last three games, are just it's just people playing for Champions League spots and to avoid relegation. And in terms of um, like the, the clubs you're talking about, you mentioned Luton Town, and I'll, I'll talk about um, my hometown in a sec, but I think the problem is that people are seeing clubs like Luton and saying, wow, like what a great story. That's, I love that. You know, it's, it's so awesome to see a team come in the fifth division, like, you know, fairy tale, yada, yada. Why is that so rare? Like, we want that to be more common. We, we don't want that to be something that happens once in 20 years. Um, you know, Leicester winning the league. We want that to be 
something that's more common because you know everyone deserves a shot um, exactly and so yeah the the comparison is fc heidenheim which is yeah where my dad was born and they are very similar to luton which a lot of people will know um the history i guess the recent history is that the club kind of uh like reformed in a sense in 2007 and when they did they were in the fourth division but it was kind of the fifth division they needed to the german leagues were changing um, and they needed to basically finish in like the top five to make it still into the fourth division they did that so they stayed in the fourth division um under the coaching of frank schmidt who came in in 2007 2009 they got promoted to the third division um i was lucky enough to go and see them play in the third division back then it was really lovely to go see like all the local fans standing room only um real like real nice same stadium yeah same stadium um you know people selling like hot mugs of mulled wine and you know standing in the snow and then 2014 they got promoted to the second division so it's five bundesliga um where they spent 10 years there and like were fairly successful were never like a threat at relegation had a couple of playoffs and then um at the end of last season they got promoted into the bundesliga um and frank schmidt who came in in 2007 is still the coach so the head of the club uh the director is still the same the manager is still the same um you know you've got a fourth division manager who's worked with his club understands the town same with the owners they've grown all the way through and their success isn't from big money and a lot of people have said oh yeah, you know it must be money that's got them through here but their investment hasn't been foreign it's all been local investment which is coming back to like the club being local all of their sponsors are from the local area um that area in germany does have a lot of like pretty well-off medium-sized businesses that no one would have ever heard of that all got behind the club um anyone can become a sponsor so there's over 400 sponsors of the club so like the wow. local like a local restaurant if they want can put in three thousand euros a season and become an official sponsor of the club so it's effectively a crowd-sourced team and so everyone in the everyone in the region's bought into the club they all want to see it succeed some of those like bigger sponsors that have been around since the fourth division they weren't piling in the cash. They just yeah, said... I feel like their, their front of shirt sponsor has been the same for a long yeah, time. Yeah, so Voigt and Hartman are two local. Uh, Hartman makes like medical supplies. Voigt makes like manufacturing um, parts. And they just said, you know, you're in the fourth division. We're going to give you this much money. It's it's like the same as what everyone else in the league was getting. But if you get promoted, then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll match. We'll, like, we'll keep rising. So they weren't getting way overs compared to everyone else in their league so they've like last season they had the 12th highest um uh, like squad value in the second bundesliga and yet they got promoted with the 12th highest um now they're sitting at like a squad value of i think it was around like 40 million euros where bayern's is like one point something billion um so it's like it's crazy to think that if you put a team in and build these infrastructure you can have that connection you can grow like this is a sustainable way to grow because if heidenheim does get relegated these things aren't going to leave like the money is not going to go because they still have that connection and the people are still going to want to go to the stadium i'm sure that the same fans that are there now were there 15 years ago and they'll be there 15 years in the future and the same sponsors will be there 15 years in the future and were there 15 years ago so it's it's a very 
sustainable way to run a football club. Yeah, and that, that in contrast with a lot of sponsors will get behind newly promoted teams because of the massive £180 million influx of money that teams get for getting promoted. But then if that, as soon as they get relegated, it's kind of like... Oh, well, just look at all the Premier League clubs with all the, um, the the different like Asian betting companies on the front of the shirt, on the shoulders. Like Companies will just jump in just for the season and jump out. It's like they don't bring anything to the club in a meaningful way. Yeah. Like they give you money, but they're not there because they want to support you. They're there because they see you as a way to advertise. Yeah, and you, you, more and more and more you see sponsorship on shirts change. I think, like, to, to be fair, uh, City and Arsenal have been the same for possibly the longest. Mm. But And now Liverpool will be coming up on a very similar amount. Standard Chartered's been with them since almost 10 years or mm-hmm. more but then you see United's changed like four times no three times since Fergie left uh, Chelsea has changed I think three times uh, in the oh no twice in the past few years uh, Tottenham I think has changed oh no, Tottenham well AIA for a while but again they've they've had multiple and it's just and like shirt sponsors isn't the be all and end all of sports but yeah it's just something that I wanted to point out it's like people the Premier League is such like a money grab this year. This uh, not this year uh, has become such a money grab that like conversely the Bundesliga and uh, other leagues. It's just it, it's it's nice to see it's not the case. Yeah, and I guess circling back to how sort of jaded we are with how the game is sort of going. If hypothetical scenario, if our teams are bought out by those type of things. You'd probably you'd stop sporting Liverpool and probably focus up more solely on Heidenheim. I'm assuming. And I think uh, even in a, in a bigger way, and I've been doing this a lot more. Is I've been tending towards more local football, and I know you've been doing this as well. You know, supporting like women's teams, supporting um, you know, yeah, like teams playing in the in the state league or the A league, NPL, yeah, NPL, A league. Um, just going back to something that I have more in common with yeah and then the same thing with me like i uh mpo i was involved with obviously through work but then also in england there's a team that was started by a youtuber that i watched when i was 17 18 mm. called spencer fc and he basically quit he didn't really quit his youtube channel but sort of stopped posting on it and just sort of put all his efforts into making a football team that used to just be a sunday league team and he's like no we're going to enter it in the football league and not the football league. we're going to enter it in like the, into the football pyramid yep and they have they're now on the in the eighth or seventh tier of the football pyramid. Uh, they're called hashtag. Where did that. they start? They started on the the tenth tier. I'm pretty sure. Oh, good had, on them. Or maybe the eleventh. But uh, they've, they've had they've had three promotions. Yep. I'm pretty sure. Um, so yeah, they, that must mean if, if they're on if they're in the seventh, that means it means they started yep. on the tenth. But I'm pretty three promotions. I'm, so, I'm yep. pretty sure that um, there's only ten levels of the football, of the football yep. pyramid. And, and and like yeah, like obviously Spencer probably has a little bit of money from um his YouTube career and also hashtag is easily like with a YouTube channel uh of like six hundred and fifty thousand subscribers, probably gets viewership from that and more fans from that of anyone else in the seventh tier of yep. uh in the East East Premier League is what they're playing. Uh, but still, that's a team that like, goes about it in sort of the right way. And, and Spencer's like, we're, 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 even though we've got a funny name, we're a legitimate team trying to one day make it to firstly the Football League mm. and then you know maybe one day the Premier League. But like, they, and every, play, every player and every team in that league pays their players. But like, yep. 
I, I obviously don't know the guy, but from watching how he's gone about how he's un, like operated as the club owner, I would trust that Spencer Owen goes about it in the right way of like, because he's also he got this coach Jay Devereaux in when um, I think very soon after they entered into the football uh, pyramid over five years ago. And he has stayed with them. I mean, obviously, he stayed with them because it's never had lots of success. But Spencer has said, "I has been on record and said I will leave the club before I sack Joe Devereux." Yeah, and it's like sort of in common with what Heidenheim have done. It's like you find a manager who matches the values and what you want, and you just stick with him no matter what. Yeah, and you back him to the hills. You'd be like, win, lose, or draw, success, promotion, relegation. He's our guy. He'll stay there until he wants to leave. Yeah, I just think yeah, like that's a team. If Arsenal. And I, I already do. Like, I obviously don't watch the live streams because, like, like, like most English football, it's on at yeah. crazy times. But like, as soon as I highlight, because uh, the, they uh, another good accessibility thing is like that they, they do that no other team in that league or even the leagues above them would do until the, maybe like the national league, is they post twenty five minute highlight videos of all their games. So you can you can essentially just and they don't post spoilers on their Instagram or anything. So you essentially watch those highlights as if you're watching a shortened game, mm. and you won't know the result until the end. And that's it's a really effective way to keep in touch with that team and support that team. I obviously haven't bought any of their merch or anything, but like I I would say I'm I am a supporter of that team, and I would become a lot more of a supporter of that team and probably like NPL teams and Arsenal women. Although maybe not Arsenal women because if Arsenal got bought out, but you know yeah, what I, mean? I, I know what you're saying yeah. That I would go to all those things a lot more. I'm not 100% saying I would give up on Arsenal on the whole, but I would seek the footballing fix that I obviously crave as, yeah. a, as, a, as a avid sports watcher from those teams than I would from Arsenal. Because at the end of the day, like we love the sport. We love football. We're in it because we're passionate about the sport. We're also passionate about the storylines of sport. Um, and... You know, we do have these teams we support, but I'm not at my heart an EPL supporter. I'm a football supporter. And so I can find these things in different ways. And at the end of the day, like no matter what changes in the future, you know, the Premier League becomes the biggest business in the world, whatever. At the end of the day, the rules of football, still the rules of football. We can go to a park and get 22 people together and we can play a game. And I think that's the core thing that we've lost. We've lost it at the end of the day. Like football is just a game that we love to play. Um, and everyone can do that in a way that works with their life. And if you're doing it in a way that like, hey, you love watching a lot of media online, you're watching YouTube, hashtag United, that supports that. You know, if you go to your local club that's nearby, that, that works for you. If you're someone that's really passionate about a social cause, like um, Forest Green Rovers, another team in the, in the UK um, pyramid, their stick recently has been sustainability and like, how do I make a green football club? If that's what you're into, and that's something that's akin to you, and that's why what sort of sort of drew you in. Exactly, and so like you're you're giving people a way to still love the sport football, but in a way that works with their lives. Um, and I think that will only become more and more common as people do get separated from the highest highs of football. Is finding a way that they can meaningfully interact with the sport that they love. Yeah. And I think I am a fan of the EPL to an extent, whereas, as we said, we're football fans, so we want to watch players yes. who are really good yep. doing really good things. Yeah. You know, that's essentially what it is. The Premier League is uh, attracts really good talent and is also 
especially in Australia, available to watch pretty easily. Yep. And so we were like, oh, and because we have these predetermined uh, connections to these teams, Arsenal, Liverpool, etc., that we get to watch really good players on those teams play against other teams that have really good players. That's essentially what it boils down to. But it's not like, like most people, if the Premier League suddenly you know went bankrupt and all these players left, it would probably... Like, like, I, I don't think that it would be necessarily a bad thing. No. Because it would, A, make the the um, the competition a lot more even, and B, it would, you know, create everyone's uh, connection to their local clubs a lot more profound. Yes, you might lose global viewership because people said, like, just want to watch cool players. But I think what it boils to, like, as much as I am a fan of, like, you know, watch, want, wanting to watch good players play, play good football, I, there's people that are better than me in other leagues, even that are less good than the Premier League. It's, 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 so I can essentially watch that anywhere. I can watch people be better than me anywhere. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, if all these big leagues, the Champions League, you know, the World Cup, if it were all to fall apart, like there's still going to be football. There's still going to be high-level football. So it's not like it must survive. It's not too big to fail. There are other ways. And that's the, good, that's the great thing about being the global game. Like it, it does exist everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, as you, you grow up, you move... Or, you know, you, you, what you care about in life changes. Because, you know, when you're 15, you don't really have any, you don't have that many causes that you're that, you know, personally strong about. But if football starts to, um, in certain areas, challenge those causes, like, you know, you care about human rights, you don't like what's happening with Saudi takeover, you can still get your fix in other ways that doesn't support that. And uh, I, I'm not calling for the death of the Premier League, but, you know, if, I would really like to see a change. I don't think it will, but maybe I just need a change. Yeah. And on that note, uh, yeah, I think I think that's a good that's a good point to sort of wrap things up. So yeah, uh, the last thing I'll say is yeah, uh, I I am still a fan of Arsenal, and I, for for the foreseeable future, as I don't see us getting bought out by an Arab oil state anytime soon, especially with how successful we're being, our America and as quite happy sitting put and just collecting their checks, uh, but. At the same time, I, I while I still you know get up to watch Arsenal play at hours and stay out to watch them because I have that connection to the club, I, I'm finding myself more and more and more just being like, oh, God damn, like, how much money are these guys on? Like, just just so ridiculous. But yes, so to finish, the sanctity of the game is 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 fine for now, but it's trending in an unsavory direction, I would say. But do me and Josh have a fi- have a fixture for it in Josh's in Josh's kitchen in the living room? No, we don't. But I hope we hope hope you've enjoyed to, uh, us talk about it and wax lyrical about sort of the things that we are concerned about, but also the good things that are in other parts of the world with with, with regards to the game. But anyway, uh, we've dragged on for long enough. Uh, if you've made it this far, thank you very much. I um, hope you've enjoyed this long and many turns and twists winding chat about football uh thank you to josh for coming back on thank you third time was definitely a charm and uh yeah uh, the usual spiel if you've made it this far and you want to follow us on spotify beautiful uh on the socials beautiful we post every uh on on those every time we post an episode and uh yeah um this podcast is staying uh in-house owned by yours truly so no worries <laughs> about big uh out-of-state buyouts for now and actually not for now forever 
uh, the 40 Hard Switch, owned by people for the people forever. <laughs>